You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. Hi, my name is Will Brown. And I'm a lecturer of education and international development at the UCL Institute of Education. Some of you might recognize my voice from Fresh Ed, an interview-style podcast I host and started five and a half years ago. When I started at the IOE, I wanted to bring together my teaching and podcasting. Both were important parts of my academic life, but they rarely came together. At the IOE, we pride ourselves on research-informed teaching. So why couldn't I infuse my teaching practice with podcast pedagogies? Why couldn't I utilize the medium of sound and audio to enrich the study of education and international development? That's what I attempted to do this academic year, and the results have actually been quite amazing. But before we get to them, let me tell you a bit more about the idea. Podcasts complement academic papers by allowing authors to move beyond the conventions of journals and books, beyond the jargon and acronyms so common in academia. Informal conversations about new research allows us to take a step back and explore broader implications. Plus, podcasts reach new and wider audiences across the globe because they aren't behind a paywall. I've also learned to see podcasts as a way to democratize knowledge production and dissemination. They're really empowering. Anyone with a smartphone or a computer and an internet connection can produce a podcast. Anyone can be a knowledge producer. Podcasts also have a lot to offer universities. As an academic methodology, podcasts allow for the use of soundscapes and narratives to present and explore ideas in ways the written word doesn't allow. So here's what I did. I asked groups of students enrolled in my education BA module to be knowledge producers by creating 15-minute podcasts on any topic in international development and education. These students had no prior experience making podcasts, and they only had 10 weeks to submit their final audio file. So today, I want to share three clips from the student podcasts to celebrate their work, and also push the meaning of impact in new directions. You can find the links to the full episodes, as well as a few additional episodes, in the show notes below. So up first is a podcast called An International Debacle, A-Levels Examinations and COVID-19. This podcast was created by Yinha Ma, Yinhao Ma, Kai Nat Malik, Irina Penna, and Fan Wu. The podcast looks at the A-Levels grading fiasco in 2020 from the perspective of international students living in Pakistan and China. What happened to students abroad when the UK government decided an alternative method to decide grades. That's administered, um, administering our exam. Almost everyone here knows that as Cambridge. This is a choice. This is what we choose to do, the exams we choose to give. Whether you choose to take A-levels in the UK or abroad, students were not prepared for what 2020 had in store for them. What happened in 2020 was that um, 
Of course, COVID hit everywhere in March, April time. Now, initially, the government in England decided that um, they were going to try and go ahead with examinations and work out some strategies for being able to offer that for students. I think because early on, of course, everybody was really optimistic about what might happen with COVID. Which is why the Secretary of Education declared that exams will be going forward. Can you give us a cast iron guarantee that exams will not be cancelled? Absolutely. Then it became really clear by the end of April that um, we were not going to be able to have thousands of students sitting in examination halls around the country. We recognise that this will mean it's not possible or fair for all exams to go ahead this summer as normal. The Education Secretary will work with Ofqual to put in place alternative arrangements. Examination boards, um, of which we have many in England, but there are three extremely big ones who dominate school-based assessments, okay, for, for students in England. They got together with the government regulator, who's called Ofqual, and they began talking about, okay, if we can't have students sit examinations, what will we do instead? The decision was made that what they would ask um, schools to do and colleges to do was to gather together as much evidence as they had for each student. And they, what teachers would do with that was then presented as evidence to say, all things being equal, which they never are in assessment, um, we would predict this grade for this candidate. And that data was put into the algorithm. And the algorithm tried to replicate the usual awarding processes that happen year on year in, ex in examination boards. 38% of students got grades that were substantially lower than they were expecting. And some of those grades were really low. I mean, there were instances of students being predicted a B or an A who got an F, Whoa. things like that, which is just catastrophic. Shortly after the students got their grades on results day, rejections from universities followed. The algorithm included the school's past performance as another factor to predict the grades. This became extremely problematic. Lois Griffin, head teacher at the St. Benedict's Academy, told us why. Three years, we've entered 30 students. Three years ago, one of those students got a U grade. Because of that U grade three years ago, the, the algorithm has made the decision that one of our students this year has to have a U grade. There was nobody in that class that was anywhere near a U grade. So they've downgraded somebody from a D grade to a U grade. Rafay, a former A-level student, speaks sympathetically about the turmoil that was about unleash because the situation was not much different in Pakistan. Nobody could have guessed what was going to happen. Cambridge couldn't have come up with a very detailed plan anyway because they didn't really have a lot of time. While the UK had replaced A-level scores with center access grades, what was happening to international students? Yunfei, an A-level student from China, told us about the plan CIE set in place after the cancellation of the examinations. They announced that they would take a careful plan to judge students' grades, like school must grade students and make a ranking in each grade. Also, schools must handle um, grades with supportive evidence such as the homework or the results of mock exam. However, 
Um, after the results were released, we found the CIE examination office totally did not follow this policy. Instead, they used another plan to draw the final grade. And most of us got a much lower grade than the predicted grade. Pakistani student Rafay and Sarah. That was Yinha Ma, Yinhao Ma, Kainat Malik, Irina Penna, and Fan Wu. Next up is a podcast called What Does COVID-19 Reveal About Educational Inequality, specifically regarding the digital divide in the UK, which was produced by Trista Wu, Beatrice Yi, Danny Zhang, Najmo Abdallah, and Sungjin Oh. This podcast explores how COVID-19 reveals the problem of education inequality when certain groups don't have access to technology both within and around the globe. At the height of the pandemic, schools in some 190 countries closed their doors. Many have since reopened, but the experience of lockdown heightened major inequalities in education. I think that this uh, coronavirus exposes a deep digital divide. This pandemic is exposing inequalities, and in the classroom, the poorest are falling further behind. Welcome to our podcast, I'm Danny. Just now we have heard some news about the issues of inequality and some chaotic sounds. Well, the chaos reminded me of the time when the pandemic just hit the globe. Many people are living such a hard time, especially those who are less wealthy. I would say it not only impacted every individual, but also stressed onto some international issues. Do you think that COVID-19 plays a part in this? I mean, the educational inequality. Yes, definitely. Not every child has access to the technology. That's one way in which digital divide occurs. Wait, digital divide? Yes. In a nutshell, that's about how different groups of people have different access to technologies. Dr. Patty Rose, the president and founder of Rose Consulting, explains it in relation to inequalities. The digital divide is the gap between people who have sufficient knowledge and access to technology and those who do not. According to the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, regarding the digital divide, it is threatening to become the new face of inequality, reinforcing the social and economic disadvantages. Now that I am wondering, are there any real life cases, especially in our daily education practices, I mean, how is the pandemic affecting students' education when it comes to digital divide? Today, we invited two A-level students in the UK, Arthur and James, to share their experiences during the pandemic. Hi, Arthur. Welcome. Do you mind introducing yourself first? Hi, I'm currently a year 13 student doing my A-levels, and I'm going to private school. And I've been going to private school ever since primary school. Uh, Both my parents are lawyers, so... I've been fortunate enough, uh, I guess, to grow up in a somewhat a wealthy environment, I guess. So how did you cope with the online learning during the lockdown? Um, I've had a laptop from my parents and some private tutoring from, uh, so I don't really fall behind. But, you know, I do it twice a week, around twice a week. And my tutor keeps checking up on me to see if everything's all right, everything's going good. So the tutoring helps and this, both the school and the tutoring academy, they both kind of run something called like an online study room. 
So it's like everyone goes online at the same time. We study together. Thank you so much for sharing. And hi to James. Do you mind also introducing a bit about yourself? I am currently doing my A levels, and I'm in year thirteen. I immigrated with my parents here about four years ago from the Philippines. Both my parents work at the same supermarket as customer assistants. How has the online learning transition been for you? There are only a certain few, certain few in my school, I think, who are uh, fortunate enough to have the computers and tablets to attend the live online lessons and keep up with the work. I believe what is disadvantaging me the most that I lack access to educational resources, and I also find this really unfair that opportunities to obtain a certain level of education is not equal for everyone. We have one computer in the house that I need to share with two of my siblings, therefore we have to take turns. My parents are also. Very busy with their work, so after lesson, I have no one to ask for help. I'm already falling behind because I cannot always attend the classes on time. But this situation is made worse with the fact that there are, is no one I can reach out to. That was Trista Wu, Beatrice Yi, Danny Zhang, Najmo Abdallah, and Sungjing Oh. Finally, we have Evelyn Fassion, Wang Zhu Li, Aubrey Ma, and Safia Suleiman, who produced a podcast called Can Global Partnerships Foster Peace in Conflict-Affected Contexts? They explored how global partnerships can foster peace-building in conflict-affected contexts, specifically looking at the case of Somaliland. They unpack the different root causes of the problem in these areas and explore why peace remains elusive. Peace-building education can be interpreted in different ways, but it comes down to how education can foster stability for young people and reduce risks of recurring conflict. Higher education in conflict-affected contexts can be a pedagogical space where through global partnerships, curriculums can be collaboratively built. Constructive critical dialogue about the causes, consequences, and solutions to conflict and inequalities can be made. We designed a curriculum for higher education in Somaliland with the colleagues there, and we taught together. And that course actually stayed with the Institute for Peace and Conflict Studies in University of Hargeisa. So the idea was that it was owned by the local colleagues rather than you know us giving out a, a curriculum, because that curriculum was developed based on research and consultation and review with the local partners, university partners and other civil society partners in Somaliland. So it was the idea to actually promote its relevance, its contextualization and ownership of the research outputs. Partnerships can be mutually beneficial in this way, with northern universities providing expertise and resources, whilst southern universities have indigenous and contextual knowledge. That is true. But in these contexts, there are surely challenges. In South Sudan, for instance, partnerships were ingenuine, with the South used for data collection and the North as a place where knowledge is produced. This is true, and there are asymmetric power dynamics between Western donors and the national stakeholders. If funding comes from the Northern or developed countries, they are likely to have a higher level of power in shaping the agenda, and this is made worse when they occur across historically colonial lines.
the national stakeholders tend to be more kind of excluded in the process of partnership. Even though they may be there, their voice may not be significant in terms of shaping the agenda or running the projects or achieving the outcomes. Another issue is the politicization of the curricula. Northern donors have the focus of ensuring stability in the region rather than tackling root causes of conflict, which is the interest of the national stakeholders. So for the donor countries, it is important to see the cessation of violence and whether the donor countries are interested in going beyond just the end of war, in addressing the causes of these conflicts. Do you think that higher education can sometimes be too much of a political tool that is Western-centric and can maybe push a Western idea of what peace building looks like? I think you are absolutely right. Uh, there is a danger of higher education development being dominated by Western epistemologies. And this idea of modern higher education, disciplinary focus, research, all of those things and the way that higher education development is happening in conflict-affected contexts reflects the structure, nature, and approach of higher education in the Western world. I think this could be seen as a problem because the Southern or local or indigenous epistemologies, ways of knowledge production, those could very easily be undermined. So building on this idea of Western epistemologies and disciplinary education, the Sustainable Development Goals don't have any clear disciplinary home. They work holistically together and can be spread across different disciplinary frameworks. To what extent do you think that interdisciplinary education and university could then be a solution in promoting peace building in these conflict contexts? Okay, that's a that's a very important question. Um, I think. Uh... Uh, education and conflict being an interdisciplinary field of research and practice. Um, I think it is crucial that the role of peace building, uh, education needs to be informed by uh, other disciplines, right? Because education, it is itself a multidisciplinary field of study. It's about education policy, uh, it's about um, assessment and curriculum situated in a complex social, political, cultural, religious and historical context. And that's why, uh, and when you, are, when you are thinking about conflict impacting on education and then promoting societal peace, you need to engage with uh, different theories. That was Evelyn Fassion, Wang Zhu Li, Aubrey Ma, and Safia Suleiman. You also heard the voice of Dr. Chichendra Farali. And just a reminder, I've also included links in the show notes so you can listen to the episodes in their entirety. So thanks for listening, and I hope these students' work makes you rethink the power of podcasts and reaffirms your faith in the next generation of researchers, academics, and professionals. There's much more of the IOE wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for IOE Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem. Take care. for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 